Well, we're in Exodus chapter 12, and I have been looking forward to this, as I said earlier, all day long. Cheryl and I are moving again today. The sojourn goes on, and uh, out of the house that we've been renting down on West Beach, we're back up at the, at the home right here on, on this very property, so we're nice and close, which is great. Um, and honestly, the day went pretty well. We got most everything done and taken care of and over here that we needed to get over here. And the kids are there and they're settled in, had McDonald's, you know, so we're slowly killing them, but that's all right. And, and then Cheryl called at about 6.30. And when she was backing our van down out of our driveway, she kind of backed off into the mucky uh, grass, wet grass area and it stuck. And she could not get out. She called she said, you know, if I was a crying person, I'd be upset right now. And uh, so she called. She's got people coming and they're going to get her out. And she, she may be here. Who knows? But uh, it's just amazing to me. I've, I've talked with Sharon Jureski a few times about this. But it's always right before Bible study that these things happen. That's incredible. Interesting. But, um, you know, in spite of that, in spite of some back-breaking labor and, and just being tired all day long, all I could think about was this study tonight. Because you all have the benefit of going further into the Passover than we've gone the last couple of Sundays. I said two weeks ago we're going to spend a little bit of time in this chapter because it's so vitally important. And we're going to. We're going to finish the chapter hopefully tonight. But as we do so, just understand, we've just barely scratched the surface the last two weeks on Sunday morning. We talked about um, the first six verses last week, the week before we talked about the bone that was not to be broken and the prophetic sign that was for Jesus. Well, tonight... Tonight, as I prayed a moment ago, I pray that you will see the personal nature of God's desire for us. Because in the teaching of the Passover, and in the preparation of that, and even in the the way it plays out over time, it is incredible how personal God gets. How close to each one of us He wants to be. It strikes me as amazing that the world in which we live is filled with people who think that God is distant or view God as a higher power, a nameless force. But that is not the way God wants to be seen. Something else to know as we get into this chapter is that God, being completely other, being omniscient, being completely different than we are, had to come up with a way, even before He created us, of getting his message to us. Partially in a way that we would understand, but also just in a way that we could could comprehend, take in. And God has done amazing things to do that. Paul says in the book of Romans chapter 1, that even in the very creation, he made it clear to us. Paul even says, so that men are without excuse. So there is no excuse for not knowing God, just based on creation alone. But in God's word, there is such amazing intricacy such an amazing way that, that he broke the barriers, the distance, broke through the cosmic uh, bounds of time and space that we are bound by to bring his word to us in a way that we could read it and know this is God. God is truly real. He is among us and he does want relationship with us. And I think you'll see that tonight. Let's read the first six verses again that we read on Sunday, Exodus 12.1. or 12, one. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. And we talked about, you remember that, that he changed the calendar. Seven months into the year, God said, No, this is now your first month because this is when it all changes. 
This is when I take you as my people out of Egypt, back to the promised land, and I will make you a people to myself. Verse 3 says, Speak to all the congregation of Israel and say, On the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household. A lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb... And then in verse 5 it says, Your lamb shall be an unblemished male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. And again we said Sunday, this was personal. They brought that little lamb in. Four days. On the tenth they brought it into the house. Through those four days the kids played with the lamb. They fed the lamb. They took care of the lamb. And then on the fourteenth the lamb was slaughtered. And it was brutal. And the kids would have to ask, Dad, why? Mom, why? What's the point of all this? Why are we killing the lamb? And annually on the Passover, the parents would re-explain to the children their need to be covered for their sin. That as brutal and bloody and awful as murdering the lamb was, sin was worse. And what we know now, looking back in history, is not even the blood of this spotless lamb was enough. It wasn't enough. Sin is worse. But we also see in this that desire of God to be intimately connected. He gets progressively personal with the people. A lamb in verse 3. The lamb in verse 4. And finally, your lamb in verse 5. God drawing near. The lamb gets closer to the people. God wants to be close to us through Jesus, his perfect lamb. But we need to understand something about Jesus. And that's that his sacrifice as the lamb of God is not enough. The sacrifice of Jesus as God's lamb is not enough. It's not a generic sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that is very personal. When I say that it's not enough, I mean it only goes so far, you have to accept it. It's not enough to save you if you don't accept it. Oh, it's enough to completely wash away all your sin. The sacrifice of Jesus is completely sufficient to save anybody who comes to Jesus. But without the decision to come to Him, there's no coming to heaven. He must become your Lamb. Not just a Lamb that was sacrificed generically for mankind, or the Lamb that was sacrificed generically for a body of believers at church, but your Lamb, your personal Lamb. The relationship God wants with each one of us is intimate, it's personal, it is not distant, nor was it ever intended to be distant. He's got to become your lamb. Now, the Lord says to Aaron and to Moses, He says, once you have gotten the lamb, you've kept it for these four days, now you've sacrificed the lamb, here's what you need to do. Once you've done all that, you need to apply the blood. You need to apply the blood. Verse 7. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. One of the things that pastors a lot of times will talk about, actually a lot of times become overly concerned about in their Bible messages and sermons, is personal application. I can't tell you how many times in my history as a pastor that I've heard talks about that, pastors talking about books, read books on it, personal application, how to take the Bible and make it apply. How to take God's Word and make it real to people in a way that they can understand, in a way that they can take it home and actually put it to use. Personal application. And I think sometimes there's so much focus among pastors in personal application that they miss the power of just the Word. 
Just share the word. Read the word. Study it. As we found so many times. For me, the most exciting and powerful times are Wednesday nights. Why? Because we don't do a whole lot of three points for this and, and go home. We just study it through. And in so doing, we find the power of the word itself. The personal application is there. God will apply it to us. But there's no more personal application than what Israel did with the blood as they applied it to the lintel, as they applied it to the doorposts, as they took that hyssop. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. In fact, let's skip ahead. Look at verse 22 real quick. Let's jump ahead and then we'll come back. Telling more about this whole idea of applying the blood, God says you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and the two doorposts and none of you shall go outside of the door of his house until morning. Let me give you two biblical ways to practically apply the blood. One practical application, here it is. Number one, we've got to apply the blood with humility. With humility. Now I say that because of this little thing called hyssop. Do you know what hyssop is? It's kind of the Middle East equivalent of mistletoe. It's a bushy little plant, and they took it and usually they'll break off a piece of the hyssop with all these little soft, fuzzy branches on it, dip it in the blood, and that's what they use to actually apply it, as the Bible said. But it's very interesting here to me that hyssop is what is required. It's what is used because in the Bible, hyssop symbolizes humility. It is the symbol of humility, as you'll see in just a moment. And my friends, salvation requires humility. It's the only way that you can be saved, that you can come to the Father for salvation, is in humility. You can't have salvation without humility. Do you realize that? That the one thing that keeps people, more people than not, from coming to a relationship with Jesus is pride. It's not being willing to say, yeah, I need help. Yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I'm not good enough. It's the good people. Isn't it interesting that oftentimes the hardest person to talk to about Jesus is someone who's a good person. They're not out murdering people. They're not doing bad things. Go to prisons. It's easy to make converts there. Because they know they've messed up. But man, you talk to someone who is an upstanding citizen, who's doing well in their life, they're taking care of their family, everything's good. Why do they need Jesus? I'm good. Humility. It's hard to bring the gospel to good people because pride doesn't allow a person to accept the fact that they need a Savior. Now you know this. You're sitting here as believers tonight because you know you need a Savior. You wouldn't want me tonight to put the sins up on the board behind us. You wouldn't want to project what's really going on and what's gone on in our lives even over the last couple of weeks, just the little things that we've done. We're aware of that. Humility is required. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 11 says, The proud look of man will be abased, and the loftiness of man will be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty, and against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. Humility. Humility is required. But let me just say this aside. Don't take humility for pretentious religious behavior. You see it built into a lot of churches, this idea of false humility. The the forced kneeling that may take place in some churches. The the forced um, positions that you have to take in worship. 
acting the part, but where is the heart? That's what God is concerned with, the humility of the heart. And it's not religious behavior that makes us humble. No, it's recognizing our bondage. It's recognizing where we come from, what our need truly is. And until I recognize that I cannot free myself by my own power, I will not be free. I won't look for someone else to help. I won't seek salvation by the hand of another. Which is why the Bible talks so much about repentance and confession. That's humility. The willingness, the ability to come up to someone else and say, here's what I've done. To come before the Father and lay it out before Him. Now I said before, hyssop is a picture of humility in the Bible. Psalm 51 verse 7 tells us, this is now David, and he's, he's writing that amazing psalm, 51. It's, it's where he's, he's pouring out his heart before the Father after his sin with Bathsheba. And he says, Purify me with hyssop. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. David recognizes with humility what hyssop is about. It's a purifying thing. Wipe me off. Clean me off. Make me pure. I need you. I have blown it. And I know if you wash me, Lord, if you cleanse me, then I shall truly be white as snow. He knew that because, well, the Father said that. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18, Though your sins are scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. And it is, isn't it amazing that the application of the crimson blood of Jesus is what makes us white as snow? That deep, dark, red blood that poured out of the Savior is what washes us to be whiter than snow, white like wool. It's the blood. The blood. It's the blood received in humility that saves us. But it's not half as hard to believe that as it is to receive that. The demons, James 2.19 tells us, also believe and they shudder. What you have that the demons do not is that you have received with humility the blood of Christ. So receiving the blood of the Lamb applied to the doorposts of the heart requires hyssop, that is, humility. But the second thing in applying the blood is we not only apply the blood with humility, but we apply the blood completely. Completely. Look at this picture. He goes on to say that you'll take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood, which is in the basin, and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and the two doorposts. This word basin is interesting. It's the Hebrew word sap. S-A-P-H, sap. It's of Egyptian origin and it literally means threshold. The sap in the doors at the time in Egypt and, and among Israel, they actually built in to the doorpost, to the door frame, at the bottom, on the threshold, a basin that was for washing your feet. So that as you even came in, it was, it was part of the deal. They didn't use doormats, they just had the basin there. And it was literally built into the home. And so apparently what they were doing is they slaughtered the lamb, they would drain the blood into the basement, basin at the frame of the door at the bottom there. They would take the hyssop down into the basin, into the blood, and then they would go up and across and down. When they did so, understand that the entire door frame was surrounded with blood. Blood on the bottom, thick in the basin. Blood up both sides, blood across the top. And if you stood back and looked at that picture, what you have literally is a cross with the door right in the middle of it, which is where the Father wants you to be. Right smack dab in the middle of the cross where the blood cleanses you completely, covers you completely. The basin, the sap, full of the blood, it surrounded the door. Surrounded it completely. And by the way, the Lord told them, don't stick your head outside. 
You stay inside the house. As long as you are in the house that has blood surrounding the door completely, you're safe. Don't go outside to check out what's going on. Because you are not safe out there. Only in my house are you safe. The blood surrounding the door. Sometimes I fear that we just want a little blood. You know, just enough. We don't want to walk around the world covered with the blood because that's gross and that's too Christian and that's just too much. It's a little too radical to really be wearing my faith on my sleeve where people actually see the blood on me. What's that blood on you? Well, that's the blood of Christ. Now I'm into it. Now I've got to, now I've got to talk about Jesus more. And so maybe if I just take a little blood, maybe I can keep it under my shirt where nobody sees it. Jesus wants us completely covered, so covered with the blood, so dipped in the blood, that we become radicals for Christ. Absolute radicals. Peter was a radical. One of the things I love about Peter is it was just never enough for him. In John chapter 13, verses 6 through 10, there's a great story. It's the foot washing of Jesus where he surrounds his his body with the towel and goes about washing the disciples' feet. It was, by the way, on the night of Passover when this was happening. We now think of it as the Last Supper, but it was Passover that they were sharing together. And Jesus goes around and begins washing their feet. He comes up to Peter and says, and then Peter says, Lord, not my feet. You're not going to wash me. And Jesus says, well, Peter, you don't understand. If I don't wash your feet, you're not going to have any part of me. What does Peter say? I love this. Well, not my feet only, but my head and my hands. Cover me, Lord. Wash me from head to toe. Dump that basin on me. I want all of you. And I can almost hear Jesus laughing, kind of under his breath, with affection, as he says, Oh, Peter, it's okay. You're clean enough. Just let me wash your feet, and I'm going to move on to the next guy. But Peter was a radical. It was never enough. Give me more, Lord. Give me more. He was so radical. Remember, he was the apostle that tradition tells us was crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified the way his Lord was when he was killed. Radical. Covered with the blood. Man, can you imagine being in the position like Peter was to be called clean enough? That Jesus looks at Peter and goes, No, you're clean enough. I'm going to wash your feet and you're clean. To actually have Jesus look at you and say, all right, settle down, calm down, enough of the Christianity, you're you're solid enough, you're out there enough, you're radical enough. But I don't think we would ever hear Jesus say that. Because as I've said many times before, to be a radical, outspoken Christian is to be a person of love. The more radical you get for Jesus, the more intense, the more, you know, you hear right-wing radicals. Man, the further out to the right you get in terms of Christianity the more loving you're going to become. Not the more bizarre, not the more strange. I've talked about the comparison between radical Islam and radical Christianity. There are many uh, articles, just one just a couple weeks ago in the newspaper, again, talking about, hey, radical Islam is not the problem, it's just these fundamentalists that are the problem. Well, the problem is that the fundamentalists are just doing what the Quran says. They're killing the infidel. They are just acting out to the nth degree what their book says. And I put to you that if we as Christians act out to the nth degree what this book says, we will become more loving, more gracious, more compassionate, more joyful. Our lives will be radical because we'll look like Jesus and we'll be completely covered, not just partially covered, in the blood. Let me ask you, how much of Jesus' blood is enough? How much is enough? Again, I don't think we need to worry about being too extreme. There was, by the way, an article Sunday in the Seattle Times that kind of offended me. 
bothered me. It was in an editorial section, and there was a little picture drawn. This is what drew my attention to it. Cheryl pointed it out, and we looked at it for a few minutes. And it said, Airplane Annoyances. Anybody else read that or see that? The whole article was about when you go on an airplane and you just want to be by yourself and go on your flight and someone starts annoying you. And there was a picture there, a cartoon of a guy. And, you know, he looked like a loudmouth guy and really obnoxious looking. And, and he had some stuff in one hand. But in this hand, big and bright and clear as day was a huge Bible. And he was the picture of an airplane annoyance. And the article went on to talk about how this guy came into the airplane and this woman just wanted to go on her flight and the guy started talking to her about Jesus and would not leave her alone the whole flight. And the article bashed on this guy and said, see that's the problem with those you know, right-wing radicals who always want to get on airplanes and talk to people or they stand on street corners and they go to the stores and they're constantly talking about Jesus. What the writer of the article missed was that man gave that woman all the love that he had on that flight. It doesn't matter how radical people might think that we are. It doesn't matter if they even think we're bizarre. Man, when you are hurtling toward the edge of a cliff and you know there's one way out, one way of salvation, it is not radical to share that with people. And so we come and apply the blood with complete humility and we apply the blood completely. But if you want to see how far God wants you to personally apply Jesus and His blood, read on. Verse 8, chapter 12. After they apply the blood, it says, They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Every single thing here is important. Each one of these. Roasted lamb with fire. And unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And then, verse 9, Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails, Verse 10 he says, You shall not leave any of it over till morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. The flesh must be roasted. Roasted. It should be eaten with unleavened bread and, and bitter herbs. All of these three things, each of these items further picture the crucifixion, the substitutionary death of Jesus. Listen to this. The roasted lamb. The roasted lamb. Here's the Lamb. Obviously, the Lamb is a picture of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but the Lamb must be roasted. And in the Bible, roasting fire, it's a picture of judgment. The Lamb will take the full weight of judgment, which is exactly what Jesus did. He took my place in judgment. Now, I'm going to read a verse here. It's it's hard reading. Listen closely because I want you to understand it. Romans 3.21 But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Listen, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, a substitution, in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. In other words, by the way, up till the cross. All the sins committed by people of faith in God up to the cross he and his forbearance passed over. He didn't judge. He waited. And the full weight of the judgment for all of those sins of people in faith Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Daniel, David these people all of their sin because they were people of faith lands on Jesus at the cross God held off that judgment for them 
until the judgment was paid by Jesus in the same way that that judgment that would fall on us for our sins goes back and lands on Jesus at the cross. And Paul goes on, he says, this is again to demonstrate, I say, his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, justification for you and I replaces judgment, which is what we deserve. The roasted lamb, a picture of judgment falling on the Lamb of God, falling on Jesus. Secondly, the unleavened bread. The unleavened bread, leaven in the Bible, is a picture of sin. Unleavened bread was a picture of sinlessness, of purity, and it pictures again Jesus, this unleavened bread. Jesus, the sinless one who took my sin on his shoulders. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. This verse has always amazed me. We've read it actually several times in here. I keep coming back to it because the thought that not only did Jesus who knew no sin take my sin, but the Bible says He became my sin. He encompassed my sin. He consumed my He was my sin on the cross. And Paul says going on, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Amazing. The unleavened bread. The bitter herbs. What about them? He bore in His death the bitterness of my sin, the bitterness of my bondage. Now, the Israelites, when they ate the bitter herbs, did so to remember the bitterness of their bondage, and they would continue to do so every year at Passover, all the way up to present day. They still will eat the bitter herbs, reminding them of the bitterness of bondage. But for us, the bitterness was the bitterness of our sin. And I would even put to you that that bitterness sometimes, well, it continues. It's a bitterness that we taste by living in this world and seeing things from time to time that are hurtful and experiencing things from time to time that are the result of sin. That bitterness that's still there that we know ultimately will be completely taken from us. But Jesus on the cross did an amazing thing. Isaiah 53, verse 4, prophesying far ahead of time, surely our griefs He Himself bore and our sorrows He carried, yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. Bitterness. We have the roasted lamb picturing Jesus taking our judgment. The unleavened bread picturing the sinless Jesus taking our sin. And the bitter herbs picturing the wonderful Jesus taking our bitterness on his shoulders. And then verse 9 goes on to tell us that the lamb is not to be eaten raw. That was what the pagans would have done in their rituals. It was not to be boiled in water. Now God makes a very specific point about this. And again, understand, when you read through the Old Testament, when it gets specific like this, it's not just on a whim. God's just not saying, well, I think roasted lamb. You think that's on? Yeah, I think roasted lamb, and don't boil it because that kind, of, yeah, that's kind of gross. Don't really want that. There's a reason for all of this. It's specific. Why not boiled in water? Because the lamb was not to be softened up. It was not to be loosened up. Kind of the frog in the kettle idea. You put a frog in a pan. If the water's cool, it'll stay in there. You put a frog in hot water, it'll jump right out. But as you turn the water up, you know the illustration, the water gets hotter and the frog just kind of settles in until he dies. And in this case, you don't boil the lamb in water. You don't soften it. You don't water it down, so to speak. You don't soften the blow. Why? Because Jesus would take the full fury of judgment on him 
I don't know if you recall this. There's one particular instance on the cross. Many things happened in the cross when Jesus was nailed there. But something very interesting. He was offered something to drink while up on the cross. Matthew 27 verse 33 says, When they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. Why? Because gall was a painkiller. They would mix gall with the wine, give it to the men on the cross, it would numb them so that they could survive longer. Because again, Roman crucifixion was about a length of time. And so they would give him a little numbing agent, make the pain kind of soften a little bit, but then the pain, of course, would come back worse than before. And when Jesus began to taste that wine and recognize that there was painkiller in it, that there was gall mixed in, he would have none of it. Because on the cross, Jesus felt the full fury, the full weight of judgment, the full fire, the full roasting that the lamb needed to feel. Verse 10 goes on and says, You shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. It was an all or nothing meal. You eat the whole meal tonight. Finish it tonight. And anything you don't finish, you burn it. Get it out of there. It's not to be carried with you. There are no doggy bags at the Passover. You don't take anything home. There are no leftovers. No reheating. We reheated turkey and stuffing for about a week. And we just finally finished. I love that. But not with this meal. Not with this one. You eat the whole lamb. And any that's left, it's fire roasted, it's burned, it's gotten rid of completely. Do you remember what Jesus said about eating his flesh? He made these comments. John 6.53 Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Doesn't that take in new significance when you look at the Passover? The eating of the roasted lamb. The drinking of the wine in the Passover. The eating of the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs. All of these things. Jesus says, you've got to consume me. He goes on and says, he who eats eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. Jesus does not mince words here. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, but he who eats this bread will live forever. In other words, Jesus is saying, I want you to consume me. Completely. Don't leave any leftovers. Nothing for the doggy bag. Nothing for that. You take me in now, completely, wholly, fully. He wants us to feed on his mind. He wants us to consume his walk, his ways. To be ever cognizant of the personal application of his blood to the doorposts of our lives. To recognize day in and day out how deep his love is for us. How passionate he is about us that he would spill out his blood to save us. Again, the Passover was a one-night deal with no leftovers, just as there are no leftovers with Jesus. John 19.30, Telios, he said, it is finished. And Hebrews 9.27 and 28 tells us, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once, how many times? Once. (laughs) Once. 
Having been offered one time to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. To those who eagerly await him. That rings true in my heart, speaking of eagerly awaiting Christ. It was with eager expectation that the Passover meal was to be eaten. Look at verse 11. God said, you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Eat this meal with expectation. Eat this meal with preparation. Your loins girded. That sounds a little strange. I don't think you can go into a guy's locker room today and say, okay guys, gird up your loins and run some laps. It wouldn't be taken well. They'd be a little, you know, upset by that. What you do with the, the way they wore their clothes in those days, the longer robes to gird up the loins, literally meant to pull them up and kind of strap them around so it basically looked like you had big puffy shorts on. But in so doing, they could run because it's not easy to run in a robe. My kids have figured that out. Hannah had a nice little bathrobe and was running down the hall and down she went. You know, you learn these things. And they understood this. Gird up your loins. Get ready to go. Sandals on your feet. Staff in your hand. And eat it in haste. It's a declaration of readiness. The Passover meal. As God is passing over the sin in my life, I am also getting ready. I'm prepared to pass out of this land to the promised land. And every year as the Jews eat the Passover, they recall that, that readiness, that haste about the, about the meal. Again, I, I started out mentioning that we've been moving again today. And this is just, it's kind of part of the ongoing sojourn of the Crawfords. But I'll tell you what, something that has been on my mind all day long is that thought, once again, that we are not permanent here. That we are not to settle in. Oh, I think the Lord wants us to enjoy our homes and to especially have people in them and to share that fellowship and to feel rooted to a degree. But I want you to understand that God wants us ready. He wants us prepared. He wants the staff in our hand, our loins girded. He wants the sandals in our feet and us ready to go at a moment's notice or maybe better put in the twinkle of an eye. He wants us looking. And then do a little heart check tonight. Are you living that way? Are, are you at a point right now where, man, you just, any second. I remember Bill Cosby talking about walking home from the movies. And it's after 10 o'clock at night and he's scared to death. And he and his friend, old weird Harold, are walking home together across the 9th Street Bridge. And they've got to get home and they're very frightened. And he says, and we're just shuffling. We're keeping our feet straight on the ground. Why? Because we didn't want to lift up one foot. And if something jumped out, end up, you know, we want to be able to jump straight to heaven. Straight up to heaven. And if you have a foot lifted up, you take a chance on going sideways. That's what he said. And so are we living our lives taking a chance on going sideways? Or are we accepting the declaration of readiness? Jesus was clear. Be ready. Keep watch. Keep your eyes open. I'm coming. In the same way in the Passover, God says, you eat it in haste. You get ready. You be set to go because come morning, it's going to be a new day. And I'm bringing you home. We're going out when Jesus adjusted the Passover meal to focus preciously on himself, he did so for two apparent reasons. 1 Corinthians 11.26 says, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There are two reasons to take communion, two reasons to recall. The first is that it's a proclamation of his sacrificial death, but also when we take communion, which is our weekly Passover, it comes straight out of the Passover meal. It's not just proclamation of his death, but it's also preparation 
for His return. As we take it, man, we remember Christ, we remember the sacrifice, those around us, maybe people who don't even understand much about Jesus, maybe who are just visiting for the first, second, or third time, maybe they haven't even been in church before, and they watch the communion going around, and they watch people praying, you know that's a proclamation? What that says to them is something that I couldn't preach from up here. A remembrance, body, blood. And as people begin to ask questions, it's the perfect time, just like children in the Passover ask questions at various times through the meal. You remember doing that last year, Chris? We had our Passover Seder in here, and, and Frank Dresby led us through that. And Chris had some questions that he read, and there's always a son or a daughter in the family that would read those questions. In the same way, people will question what you're doing, taking communion, its preparation, and its proclamation, both. <sighs> There's no stand put in Christ. By the way, there's also something to this idea of being ready, of having your loins skirted up and your staff in your hand, sandals on your feet, ready to go. It's not just a heaven issue. It's also a going where God wants you issue. It's a following the lead issue. John chapter 3 verse 8. Jesus says the wind blows wherever it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going And this is wonderful. He says, so is everyone who's born of the Spirit. You have the Spirit in you. You may not have a clue where you're going. You may not even really be sure where you came from. But man, in the Spirit, it's a wind that you want to ride. It's a wave you want to ride. It's a place you want to go. When the Spirit draws, when the Spirit leads, and the Spirit may just lead you very small. It It might not be all over the globe. The Spirit may lead you into your bedroom to kneel down by your bed and pray for someone. The Spirit may lead you to get in your car and drive into town and go to the store and you don't even really know why you're there until you run into someone who needs a fellow Christian to pray for them. The Spirit leads and those who are born of the Spirit follow. They're ready to go at a moment's notice. we got the sandals on our feet. The loins girded up. Going where the wind blows. I, I'll tell you, I loved my home on Copper Pond Road in Anacortes. Loved it. My favorite place that we've ever lived. It was a cool, kind of funky, diagonal type of home. I mean, it had just weird angles and curves in it. It was great. I loved it. I loved living there. But when we knew that the Lord was calling, that the Spirit was calling to plant the bridge, to be over here, to start this church, when we accepted that, instantaneously, both Cheryl and I knew we had to move. Now we could have driven across the bridge and we could still be driving across the bridge. But we knew. In fact, it was really interesting to me the day that I looked at Cheryl and I said, well, what do you want to do about living? And Cheryl said to me, I think we need to sell the house. We didn't have a place over here. We had yet to discover this wonderful blessing of the land and all the stuff that's come with it. We didn't know. But that verse always sticks in my head. If you're in the Spirit... If you are filled with the Spirit, if you are born of the Spirit, man, you don't know where you're going. The Spirit knows. You don't know where you're headed tomorrow. The Spirit knows. You don't know maybe what all you've done in your life for the Lord. But the Spirit knows. I think I've spent a lot of time on that. But it's so important for us to understand that as believers. Go with the Spirit. Roll with Him. That's the life I believe the Lord wants us to live, looking for His coming and flowing with the Spirit. In the flow. Just unsettled enough so that when we eventually do leave here, it's no hardship. 
It's no stress, it's no worry, we could really care less. Leave the world behind, take me now, I'm ready to go. Verse 12. I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt both man and beast and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments I am the Lord the blood shall be a sign again the blood the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live and when I see the blood that will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt God says when I see the blood it's not the beauty of the house that's not what's going to save you it's not whether the mortgage is paid off it's not the decor or the motif that you may have chosen for your home it's not the goodness of the people who inhabit the house but listen it wasn't even the shed blood of the lamb that saved them it was the applied blood What this verse tells us is you can go through the process of sacrificing this lamb, draining the blood, but if you didn't apply the blood, if there was no application of the blood, you were not saved. You were not protected. God says, when I see the blood, as I come to your home, if I look and see the blood on the lintels and the doorposts, in the basin, when I see the blood, I'll pass over. When I see the blood, the applied blood. Dang, the blood of Jesus must be applied. It, it must be received, embraced, accepted by us. And it's received humbly and completely with an eye to the return of Christ. Now, we're going to move into a secondary feast that was part of the Passover feast here, connected to the Passover, but it's a feast celebrated unto itself, and it's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread.